uh, I will just say good morning uh, and happy new year. And uh, we are in for an exciting morning with not one, not two, but three presentations. In the interest of time, uh, we'll turn this over to uh, Dr. McGinn, if you have any remarks, otherwise to Dr. Sagar, who's going to be our moderator. I'll, I'll just take the opportunity to say Happy New Year and um, just grateful for all the presenters today. Uh, amazing work, body of work that you're going to see. Um, I always, it's the new year. It's my second year um, here at Common Spirit. And I feel like we're constantly introducing ourselves to ourselves at Common Spirit. We're making ourselves aware of the amazing talent, the research, clinical innovation that's going on. And this is a way to do that. So I'm excited to hear about our award winners. And really, we should all just take a recognition and a moment to appreciate how amazing Common Spirit is and the portfolio of amazing people doing incredible, innovative work in so many different communities across the United States. So. That's all I'll say and hand it over to the amazing Dr. Sagar, who's going to introduce the speakers. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the National Abstract Competition Grand Rounds. Very excited to have you all here. I want to briefly review what this abstract competition really meant. And the purpose was to highlight the amazing work, the research, the clinical acumen, as well as the quality work that's being done across our footprint. We have three main categories, clinical research, health disparities research, or health equity research, and practice innovation, high value care. The submission criteria is in front of you. We looked to include everybody who was affiliated with Common Spirit Health across our clinics, our offices, as well as our academic partners. We received a total of 57 abstract submissions, which were an immense example of some of the phenomenal work being done across the board. Next slide. The judging criteria in brief was a rubric that was created based on the AAMC rubric for abstract competitions, five criteria, direct clinical care influence, generalizability of the findings, research design, clinical impact, and influencer status about how can, is it possible for this to influence care delivery across our common spirit health physician enterprise? Next slide. None of this could be possible without the incredible efforts, insights, guidance of all of the folks listed in front of you and beyond. A special shout out to Brooke Burgess, John Knishi, and Rachel Lytle for making all of this abstract competition seem absolutely seamless and was not possible without each of these folks. So thank you, thank you. And our next presenter is uh, Dr. Danda Moody, and he has a winning abstract for our practice innovation, high value care. And the title of the abstract is dedicated atrial fibrillation clinic can significantly reduce hospital admissions while improving clinical diagnosis and long-term management. And Dr. Danda Moody is the executive medical director for the Center for Cardiovascular Health at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health and serves as a program director for the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship Program at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health. He is also the assistant professor at the University of University of Washington School of Medicine and practices in part-time cardiac electrophysiologist. Please take it away, Dr. Danda Moody. Thank you, uh, Ankita and the, and the panel for selecting our second abstract from the Pacific Northwest. 
I want, I'm trying to, I was trying to, um, she was telling me to get off the camera. I was trying to frame a picture for those of you who can see these slides. These are our three tertiary care sites uh, in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the first one is St. Joseph Medical Center. The second one is St. Michael Medical Center. And the third one is Virginia Mason Medical Center, which the first abstract was from, and you can see Mount Rainier. If you can see my picture right now in the background, if you're looking at it to your left, you can see Mount Rainier and the sunrise right there. And the second abstract is from St. Michael Medical Center. And this is the lobby looking at the Olympics. So for those of you who have not made a trip to the Pacific Northwest, this is what we encounter every single day. So just wanted to make people feel a little jealous. <laughs> um, the, our abstract, uh, I wanted to give a shout out here specifically to Chris Handy. Chris Handy is really the one who deserves all the credit for this abstract. She's done all the work uh, to present, uh, to put the, all this together in that sense. It's passionate people like her, our nurse navigator, for, who actually first conceived this and, and really took it to fruition, really who deserves all the credit. These are my disclosures. Why, so the big question is why? Why do we need to do such initiatives? What is, what is the reason behind it? Uh, for those of you who are not well-versed in atrial fibrillation, it's the most prevalent arrhythmia on the planet. Uh, this was back in 2010. Uh, where it's estimated close to 35 million uh, people actually are afflicted by it. And you can imagine now with wearable watches and, and things of that nature with Apple watches and so on, any wearable device, you can see that the prevalence is only going to increase over time. And again, a sobering statistic that people don't realize, 2% of people younger than the age of 65 have AF. And close to 10% of people over the age of 65 have AF. And once you start getting even older, once you get past age 80, close to 15% plus patients actually have AF. So it's a very highly prevalent disease, just no different than hypertension, diabetes, and so on. And not only does it have a patient cost to it, there's a huge economic financial cost to it as well. And it's been estimated that this is, again, older data, close to $26 billion of spend each year in the US alone. Just to put it in context, if you take heart failure as a whole, that's approximately around 35 plus billion dollars in expense. So this is a substantial cost to uh, healthcare systems all across the US and all across the globe as well. And the other aspect of why it makes it important in terms of recognition and treatment, early treatment is, there's a five-fold increase in risk of stroke that increases with age. And AF-related strokes are, are significantly worse than non-AF-related strokes because primarily because of the thrombus burden. And there's a threefold increased risk of heart failure and also increased risk in dementia and mortality. And some of the older data, about close to 750,000 admissions annually in the US, more than 100,000 deaths that are primarily ascribed to the AF itself. And it, it not only does it exist by in itself, it exists with other diseases, and you're three times more likely to have multiple admissions, and you're 20 times more likely to die in the hospital if you have AF versus not having AF. So these are some incredible statistics for a, a disease, even though we call it an arrhythmia, that really needs a lot of attention uh, just globally and especially in our own system. So the idea behind this was to have, uh, how do we expedite care with patients who have atrial fibrillation, essentially in a nutshell, in an ambulatory setting? So how do we take hospital-based practices? How do we take ER-based practices that we do to manage these patients? And how do we transition them to ambulatory practices 
in a pretty rapid fashion in terms of triaging and, and shortening length of stays and increasing uh, quality of care and their outcomes as well. And it's also important to realize, even though we think of AF as an arrhythmia, it's a disease. That's how we tend to approach it here uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And more and more people are recognizing that it's not just an arrhythmia management, even though I'm an electrophysiologist, it's actually uh, managing patients with other comorbidities that add to the burden of atrial fibrillation. So our AF clinic is actually designed in a way around all the other multidisciplinary um, fields that actually support AF, whether it be cardiovascular surgery, whether it be our EP lab where we do procedures, whether it's structural heart, heart failure related, where there's structural heart involved as well. Pulmonary, which is a huge component of what we do, referring patients for sleep apnea, uh, which concomitantly can worsen the outcomes of atrial fibrillation. Our device clinics, where we actually track patients with atrial fibrillation burden and also initiate anticoagulation based on uh, atrial fibrillation initiation and, and and so on, Pharma, uh, using our pharmacy to educate patients, whether it be anticoagulation or antiarrhythmics, our, our dietitians, especially tying it to potentially with bariatric surgery and also uh, counseling, and, and most importantly, also reducing their risk for a stroke in the long run. That's the primary concern when we first start evaluating patients is what is their overall risk for stroke? And we've also tailored it uh, to make it easier to refer patients through the EMR, especially uh, outside referrals as well, to some degree. And uh, due to time constraints, we're going to focus really on the monitoring aspect of it, but there's uh, a multitude of things that we've done uh, along with uh, just monitoring as well. But one of the initiatives that we took on early on was how do we expedite discharges from the emergency room for most of these patients who really don't need admission? Atrial fibrillation, usually when they present uh, most of the time, if they have primary atrial fibrillation, not somebody with pneumonia coming in and having atrial fibrillation, but we're talking about a primary diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, maybe with some concomitant disease at the same time. Uh, if you look at it between August to December uh, 2022, we looked at our data of initiating monitoring with the protocol with the ER physicians. And you can see uh, the yield, overall yield of actionable arrhythmia. So these are all patients where they felt that they would benefit from putting them on a patch monitor and then discharging them and following them up over time and looking at the actionable arrhythmias that came from the monitoring itself. You can see the yield is about one in four patients. And you can also see the use of utilization of these ZO patches that increased significantly over time, essentially taking ER care where it would have persisted probably in the emergency room or being admitted you're actually being discharged on these monitors and, and following them up uh, as an outpatient uh, in our AF clinics. And uh, I would argue for, for the number of patients that you're seeing here, that's a substantial amount of one in four patients having actionable arrhythmias. So these are not just primarily slapping monitors and sending people home with the low yield. These are actually very high yield patients that potentially may be admitting into the hospital and managing them when we can actually manage them in an outpatient setting. And if you look at specifically, there are two different types of monitors we can use in, in the electrophysiology world, in the cardiology world. One is a live monitor where you actually extend essentially hospital-based telemetry to the home. And there's also a passive monitor where it's recording in the background uh, and collecting data for the next two weeks. And then we get the summary of that data and all the data itself uh, to review after two weeks and make decisions, clinical decisions. 
The disadvantage of the live monitor is that it requires a physician to be able to interpret live when there are uh, actionable arrhythmias that come on. And you can imagine the burden if you do it over a thousand patients, somebody has to be on call 24 hours a day, basically getting phone calls from the monitoring center to look at uh, live actionable arrhythmias. So again, we set up protocols to make it easier for emergency room doctors to triage patients. Usually if there's a live monitor involved, uh, cardiology is consulted to assist with it because sometimes maybe the patient needs inpatient care and uh, extending their care on a live monitor may not be the uh, ideal uh, thing to do. But vast majority of these are, are passive monitors, not active monitors. And again, you can see the number of arrhythmias uh, that were detected in the patients and uh, also uh, uh, patients who did not have arrhythmias that normally would have kept in the hospital to monitor to see what their symptoms were related to. Similarly, uh, we did inpatient. Uh, what makes this model a little bit unique is not only did we look at emergency room patients, we also looked at inpatients uh, at St. Michael uh, Medical Center and looking at what if we can actually expedite discharges by continuing monitoring at home rather than doing it in the hospital setting. Again, you would expect the yield to be higher now that you're admitting them to the, from the emergency room into the hospital because your pretest probability is higher. That's a 50% yield of patients who actually got admitted, got discharged on a monitor, somewhat expedited discharge, uh, and looking at their actual arrhythmias. Uh, again, uh, this is actually incredible numbers if you think about it. And uh, overall, uh, in the month of, or the uh, year of, calendar year, essentially of 2022, uh, you can see uh, about, like I said, 50% of these patients have actually having significant arrhythmias that are actionable where we actually acted on, whether it be bringing them back as an outpatient to do something, or sometimes rarely asking them to come to the emergency room to be admitted to do inpatient work. Uh, so in summary, just looking at monitoring itself, again, we didn't go into the entire uh, uh, management of these patients, but uh, there was a 23% reduction in admission rate between January through May of 2020 to 2021. We use, uh, when we looked at reduction, again, we have to go back and look at all our data besides the monitoring aspect of it. But overall, we were able to reduce uh, one in four, if you think about it that way, uh, admission rates by instituting this protocol. And you can also see the increased utilization of these patch monitors, which was significant. And one in three patients actually had actionable arrhythmia. So this is a high yield testing in a high yield cohort where you carefully select these patients uh, based on your protocols to actually uh, manage them in an outpatient setting and converting it from inpatient to outpatient management. And really dedicated AF clinics not only improve AF management, but can reduce your length of stays, your ER admissions, uh, specifically, uh, and in this day and age where we have struggling with length of stay, this would be a, a great segue into managing a, a big cohort of patients that we all manage in our hospitals. And not only does it have patient-centered outcomes and, and patient quality and so on, but there are significant cost reductions as well. That's the next step of data that we're going to analyze is to see what is the overall significant cost reduction uh, to implementing such um, protocols. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. I think that's a great cue for us to go to our panel discussion and look at that beautiful picture. Thank you for making wow. us all jealous. We're very envious now. 
Uh, yeah, we don't so see the rain there. Doc. That's uh, right. We don't see the rain. We only see the mountains. So I just want to point that out. So. Yes, it's strategically uh, taken. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Fantastic. It's filtered out. No uh, atmospheric river at the moment. Dr. Moody, and, and in particular, Chris. Uh, Sorry, can good, we stop sharing the uh, yeah. slides? Very, very um, good, good work and, and important work. I think you know, one of the uh, main theses uh, that can't be overemphasized is what you said at the beginning, uh, atrial fibrillation is a disease. Uh, it's not an acute uh, event. And in the absence of reversible causes, you mentioned pneumonia, hyperthyroidism, um, you know, you're going to have recurrent AFib. This is a chronic problem. And, and Chris, I think, uh, interested in your perspective on this, as you move away from this acute setting and kind of into the chronic phase of this, how do you see this intervention uh, uh, really uh, panning out to affect some of the morbidity and, and obviously mortality uh, that's associated with atrial fibrillation, uh, the, the strokes, the uh, uh, cognitive disabilities, uh, et cetera. Chris? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so really the way that we have set up this atrial fibrillation clinic is that we wanted to expedite the care for these patients, you know, into the outpatient setting, you know, reducing the hospital admissions. Uh, but what that gives us is that um, we're able to really modify risk factors, you know, and, and expedite that. Um, we've built relationships with other departments so we can, can get patients in, uh, refer them into other subspecialties, you know, if needed. But we're looking at their stroke risk. We're looking at, you know, their anticoagulation, uh, giving them treatment options, and really giving them a lot of uh, information, a lot of education so that they are then empowered uh, to actually be part of their care. So. Thank you. I mean, I was just going to reiterate what John just said. And I, and first of all, congratulations. I think this is, I feel like I, I could, we have to set up a separate hour maybe to go through all the, the different, you know, issues of the AFib clinic. And then you talked about the ER and they seem related, but separate. Um, maybe I could get some clarification. So when you mentioned words like reduced admissions, I'm not clear what that means compared to what, like, was it historical comparisons to people with AFib or was it, how did you, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little confused, uh, you know, so if you had a hundred patients come to the ER, they all got the ZO and then you were able to send them home on the ZO versus having to admit them. How is that? And this is Chris or, 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 or Gopi, whichever you guys want. I'm a little confused about what actually happened that could say you reduced things. I don't, so, I'm not questioning. I'm not doubting. Oh, no, that's, did, that's a great question. questioning. Uh, absolutely. So typical today, if you present to an ER with atrial fibrillation, uh, let's say just you, Tom. Yeah, you're coming in. You're going to get admitted. Yeah, you're going to get admitted. You're going to get rate controlled. Uh, and they'll put you on a drip. And they'll call hospitalists. They'll admit you probably for 24 to 40 minutes and, and then all that. So the idea behind this is... Uh, when they get admitted or when they come to the emergency room is to rapidly diagnose that this is lone AF, for example, there's no other uh, comorbidities that are exacerbating it. Uh, we actually have protocols for cardioversion, rapid cardioversion sometimes, or uh, rate control. And to once they get adequate rate control, not to admit them to the hospital and, and put them on the hospital service, but actually to discharge them on a patch monitor 
so that, for example, you could do it over a live monitor because now you can see rate controls at home and make adjustments mm -hmm. on an ambulatory setting. The, the knee-jerk reaction normally with any patient who comes in is usually you're worried about anticoagulation, you're worried about stroke risk, you're going to admit them, and you're going to put them on a hospital service, and then mm -hmm. maybe consult cardiology two days later. So the idea behind this is take these patients, rapidly triage them, uh, treat them in the emergency room, put them on something so everybody's reassured that we're actually monitoring these patients uh, post-discharge, and rapidly put them into an AF clinic within 48 hours. Okay. So that's, so that's one aspect. That's, that's the connection. Since we're running out of time, I'm just going to, um, Ankita is very keenly telling me there's no more time left. Um, no, but thank you for clarifying that. And that percent reduction you talk about is just based on assuming everyone would have been admitted. Is that sort of what that is? We took a historical cohort before who came in. And looked at admits yeah. and now said, okay, understood. I'm going to follow up with both of you because I, I want to hear more about this. So good stuff. Amazing work. I wanted to just, uh, if I had the time here, what makes this a little bit unique is not just looking at ER, which uh, other places have done as well. We actually extrapolated that or actually extended that into the inpatient setting as well, where mm -hmm. normally you would actually manage them longer in a hospital setting. Now we're actually sure. putting them on monitoring and discharging them and basically you're continuing hospital telemetry at home. It's hospital Yeah, at I home. think that's what's great. I love that creativity there that you're, you know, and again, I'm, I know Ankita's looking at me, but what, you know, what can I tell you? As hospital length of stay shrinks, what, in many ways, what we're doing, and we did some research looking at continuing anticoagulation for high-risk people outside of AFib. I'm talking about, you know, prophylaxis, because when patients just be in hospital for two weeks, now they're in it for four days, they're, they're, they're recovering at home in bed and need to be treated as if they're still in a hospital to some extent. And that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're kind of bringing the hospital home. So that, anyway, I'll stop. Well, thank you for that really exciting and engaging conversation. Mm -hmm.